todo el mundo. Was really... 1881. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. The Songbirds Guitar Museum in Chattanooga, Tennessee, once hosted the world's largest collection of vintage guitars and was host to many great musicians on its stage. When the pandemic's effect on the music industry forced the museum to permanently close, a local musician and filmmaker, Dagan W. Beckett, decided to document the final hours and the cultural impact of this special collection. He joins me today on the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Hi, Dagan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, how are you? I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Well, let's launch right in. I understand that even before making this documentary, you loved music and, in fact, worked in the industry. So what is your background in music? Yes, thank you for that uh, question. Um, I spent about, I'm 43, uh, and I spent about the first 10 or 15 years of my career uh, as a professional musician um, doing mostly, um, studio work and a bit of regional touring, uh, with different bands. Uh, I'm a bass player, uh, and I'm also a piano player. And so I just had this, um, love of music growing up, listening to the Beatles, um, and, and everything that came with that. So, um, yes, even though I'm, I guess a retired musician or however you want to label that, um, I still have that uh, little bit inside me of, of of that love of being a professional musician. Yeah, well, you do mention that in the documentary about the Beatles and how that uh, performance on the Ed Sullivan show really launched a lot of different careers. In fact, some of your interviewees also talk about that. Yes, absolutely. I guess selfishly as a filmmaker now, I had to get uh, some sort of shout out to the Beatles in my film. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, how did you come to make the documentary um, about the closing of Songbirds Guitar Museum? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, when I decided to um, give up uh, professional music and I made the switch to becoming a filmmaker, 
um, I still had this need to give back to my local music scene. And so being in Chattanooga, being local to Chattanooga, um, I was consistently um, offering my services as a, as a filmmaker or videographer uh, to the musicians that came in town, uh, whether they were, um, you know, famous musicians or local musicians. And so I just kind of built up a relationship with the people at Songbirds because of that. They had some, the Songbirds Museum had two amazing venues um, for the artists that came in and out of that place. And uh, I desperately wanted to be a part of it and just capture the the, the music, the music scene in Chattanooga uh, on my lens. And so, yeah, just over the years, I'd built up a relationship um, with the staff and the team there at the at the museum. And I was just like everybody in August of 2020 when I heard that they were closing. And I was devastated just because even if it wasn't a live music venue that I enjoyed going to, it was a place I enjoyed going as a musician just to uh, sit down and relax and just kind of be inspired by the the, the history of the music that was in that place and on the walls. And so I just felt compelled that it was my responsibility and it was my job to approach uh, Johnny Smith, who was the president at the time, and just offer for me to come in and just document that place, um, get interviews with staff and, and just, uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew it was something. Uh, and he just, essentially interrupted interrupted me mid-sentence and said, absolutely, you can have whatever you need. You just have a week to do it before we close. And oh, so, wow. so I, I called all my crew in and, and we went in and just uh, got as much coverage as we could. And then Irv Berner, who's my producer in this film at the time, was the assistant curator and historian of the museum. He approached me on set one day while we were filming and he pulled me into his little office and shut the door behind me. And uh, it was kind of weird. I didn't know what was going, what was going on. <laughs> it sounds ominous. Yeah. And he goes, look, I have no budget. I have no money. But would you be willing to follow me around this museum for three hours one day and videotape me giving a tour like I would any, you know, customer who would come in here and pay to take a tour? And I just said, absolutely. I don't want any money. This would be an honor for me to do this. This would be a legacy level thing for me to do this. And so what was promised to be three hours turned into three days of filming a tour just because we wanted it to be so perfect. And I'm so meticulous about how I want my shots to look. And so we took three days um, and we filmed a complete uh, tour of the place. And most of the footage that is seen in the film is footage that was shot as if you were taking a tour of the museum. So uh, it was for me personally, it was just, it was bittersweet, but I was just honored to just really have this opportunity, opportunity to experience uh, what this place uh, had to offer our world, our world, our music community. Yeah. I feel like I love guitars too. So it's like, I feel like I didn't really miss out on seeing the museum because you did such a great job with all your coverage and showing the guitars and the displays. And Thank so you. it's kind of a, it's kind of like a museum tour now forever for eternity. Yeah. Thank you. And that was the goal when producing this was to make it for, you know, it, it, the goal was to make it for someone that if you were a guitar nut, and I say that because I'm a guitar nut and, and that you would get everything out of it. You know, all the little 
nuances that they talk about, the little things with the pit guards and the pickups. And like, if you were a guitar geek, you would get everything out of that. But I also produced it in a way that if you just appreciated music and you didn't know much about guitars, that you would get a compelling story out of it as well. And I, I'm really hoping that that's what people get out of that is that it's a universal story that uh, everybody can come away with something. Yeah, I did. I got that from it. Um, now, making a documentary is so much different from directing a narrative film, but you still have to tell a story with three acts and arcs mm -hmm. and all that. So what was your process in approaching the subject? It kind of sounds to me like you filmed it everything first and then you kind of came up with your story later in editing is that how it was oh that's such a fun question thank you so much for asking that i've been waiting to answer this question <laughs> um so uh yeah it, it it was one of those things to where um as a filmmaker i feel like you can approach a project with a script with something in mind but the magic really happens in post-production um and so, yes, I went into this project with no plans of it even being a film in mind. It was just, let's just film. Let's just capture and figure it out later. Mm -hmm. And so in post-production, um, when I sat down and it took, a, it was about a two month process that nobody heard from me. Uh, but it in that two months, you know, sitting down with all the footage, I said to myself, let's just start and make a little, you know, fun video on the live music part of what the museum had to offer. So I just put together a little 10, 15 minutes, uh, you know, mini documentary on the live music uh, venue of Songbirds. And then I built out from there. And then as I built it out, you know, act one turned into uh more of what the museum was, the history of it, what it had to offer. Uh, then act two uh, switched gears to a different direction. And that was the focus on the live music scene and what they had to offer. And then act three kind of brings it all back together um, and kind of tidies it up. And then we have, of course, you know, you know, kind of the intro part of the film and then the, the, the outro and stuff. So I feel like it was a pretty tight, you know, um, film and, you know, honestly, you know, I was pushed by my sales agent to see if I could get the film to an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. I, I said, you know, I really, I really could do that. And I have the footage to do that, but it's just, it's really tight the way it is. And I just didn't want to touch it. So, you know, uh, we left it at about, you know, 61 minutes. Uh, and, and I don't regret that. I think it's a tight, easy watch that um that is is very moderately paced yeah well you did something right you won an emmy <laughs> i mean i get yeah i that's what i say to myself <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty impressive what was yeah, that, that like when you found out i mean that's got to be quite a thrill because you're kind of new to the game of uh making documentaries yeah, it's just unbelievable. You know, I've, I've been along with the music geek. I've just been a film geek my whole life, too. And I'm always like, you know, critiquing movies and documentaries and whatever. And so at the end of the day, I just put together what I thought was a good film, what I would want to watch as, as a lover of music and a lover of film. And um, just out of sheer curiosity, uh, I put the film in a 
I entered the film in a couple of film festivals. Um, and then it started getting picked up by festivals. And I understand as a realist, I understand that, you know, the ratio of getting picked for film festivals is usually very low. Like maybe one out of every 15 festivals you submit to, you'll get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I knew I didn't get my hopes up, but it started getting picked up by some festivals and start, I started entering it in more festivals. And I think to date we've done 16 or 17 festivals. And of those fest- film festivals, we've won an award of some sort um, from six or seven of them and then have been runnered up or honorary mentions at about 10 of those. Uh, and so that was really just like very humbling. Like I just, I could not believe it. I was jumping out of my skin. And then um, then word came in that we got the Emmy nomination uh, for best topical documentary in, in that category, which I was just, again, speechless, could not believe this. But I said to myself, I mean, there's no way we'll win. I mean, this, I mean, this is like the competition so stiff. There's no way. And uh, the category that we were nominated in um, broadcasted in February virtually online. Mm-hmm. And I was with my family and and we were watching online. And when they announced that, um, you know, the Emmy goes to Songbirds, um, I mean, I just, I collectively lost my shit, you know, <laughs> like, I <laughs> right. just could not believe that this was happening. And, and at the end of the day, you know, you know, I'm just humbled at all the phone calls I continuously receive the, uh, just the people reaching out and, and offering me other jobs and scripts and ideas and stuff like, I just like, I just can't believe it. And I'm just so grateful and I'm honored that someone, you know, trusted me with, um, you know, this thing called songbirds, this, this, this place and uh, in this story and uh, not a day goes by where I don't take it for granted. Yeah. Well, um, you also, part of the story is your interviewees. Um, so you've got everyone from Marty Stewart to John Five. I mean, you couldn't have a more diverse styles mm. of guitarists. How did you assemble your cast? Yeah, great question. So um, fortunately, a lot of this stuff was shot while the museum was open. So as these artists came in town, either to play um or uh, just to check out the museum, we were able to capture them just, you know, farting around on some guitars, mm-hmm. um, you know, while they were there. With And we had no idea at the time what ultimately some of this footage would be used for, uh, but we were able to capture them like, you know, John Five and uh, Eric Johnson. Marty Stewart just happened to stop by one day uh, because he was performing in town and he had heard about this uh, crazy guitar museum. And when he was coming by, uh, a, you know, a little girl who had, you know, cancer was having her 16th birthday party. And it just so happened that he went in there and sung a song for her. And we captured that on film. Um, and so a lot of that footage we had already had that we were fortunate to I've had the foresight to capture, yeah. but even after the film, you know, the first draft of the film was done, you know, Joe Bonamassa was quick to jump on board. And so we filmed a lot of segments with him, you know, John Schneider, uh, who, you know, plays Bo Duke and who played Bo Duke in the Dukes of Hazard, 
you know, not a lot of people know that he's a, you know, a country recording artist. And so he had, I had fortunately videotaped him years prior during one of his performances. And so we went back and got him after the museum closed and got him on camera to talk about his experience two years ago playing. And he had some great words to say. So the artist community was just very supportive. And we, we even had artists who really wanted to be a part of this, who we just couldn't fit in, you know, GE Smith, um, really wanted to be a part of this because he had just come through the museum, but uh, he had unfortunately uh, gotten COVID the mm. time where we were going to be in Long Island filming and he just could, you know, obviously we couldn't film him because of that. And that's very regretful, but just knowing that these artists were just so adamant about, yes, I want to be a part of it. I'll do whatever you need me to uh, is, is really a humbling and amazing uh, experience. Well, as a guitar geek, uh, what were some of your favorite guitars that you saw as you were shooting or touring the museum, maybe before you thought of the documentary? My favorite guitar in the museum, I'm so glad you asked that because it's like, you know, it's in my head. Um, <laughs> yeah. my, I'm a left-handed guitar player. Okay. Um, and so, I, you know, we all know left-handers are, are pretty rare. And so um, there was a guitar in the museum uh, it was a Gibson ES-335 from 1963, I believe, and it was a left-handed guitar. Um, and there's actually some cell phone, I shamelessly put some cell phone footage of me playing that guitar. And <laughs> <in the home. laughs> we got to put a little of yourself in there, yeah. Yeah, and it's it, that guitar was worth about $90,000. And uh, I had never played a guitar that sounded so good in my life. And I just didn't want to put it. I was running out of stuff to play. And I had to remember, no, you know, you, you can't hog this, you know, and, and stuff. But <laughs> That that was my guitar that um, and and later, like I followed that guitar after the museum closed and it later sold to a, a collector. And I was sad to see that go because, you know, in my mind, I was like, maybe one day I can buy that guitar. Maybe one day I can have enough money to buy that guitar. But um, but that was that was the guitar I loved in that museum. Well, it is. Uh, it, it's a bittersweet story that you're telling with songbirds, but there, I feel like there is an upbeat ending because you, the educational program mm -hmm. Guitars for Kids is happening now. So, what exactly is that, and how can people get involved and support that? Yes, absolutely. So, what's really cool is that uh, when the museum opened, they at the same time uh, created the Songbirds Foundation. And what the Songbirds Foundation focuses on is a program called uh, Guitar for Kids. And so essentially for a $100 donation, uh, that $100 donation will go to give uh, an underprivileged kid or, or, or child who would not have the opportunity to have a guitar. It'll get them a guitar, their very own guitar to have forever, as well as one year worth of music lessons. Um, and so... What the foundation did was after the museum closed months later, the foundation went back in to that museum space that had been uh, gutted. All the guitars had, had been removed. They, they went in there and they just spent months revamping that place. Um, and then earlier, I think it's September of 2021, uh, they reopened the doors and started doing live shows again. 
Um, it's not the guitar museum it was. It is kind of a museum. Some guitars were donated from the mm -hmm. original Songbirds collection. So the lights are back on that say Songbirds now in the building and you can go in and, and look at some things, but it's mostly geared for um, music education. It's a very interactive place where you can learn like how acoustics work and stuff but every dollar that's made from museum tours from live shows from merchandise every dollar of that goes back to the guitar for kids program and the best way to get involved in that or if you, if you have a you know a peak interest in that is just to go to their website which is songbirdsfoundation.org and it's got every bit of information on there and that's for me that's really something I've loved being a part of the past few years uh, and help giving back to that program just because I have two kids. I have an eight-year-old and I have an 11-year-old. And, uh, you know, as a parent, you know, I certainly want my kids to have the opportunity to learn the arts. And uh, if it means I can give some of my resources to make sure another child can get a guitar in their hand and the opportunity to learn, then uh, I will certainly do that. That's that's fantastic. And now we have to move from rock and roll dreams to rock and roll nightmares, because that's the name of my podcast. Yeah. So what is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? My personal rock and roll nightmare is that um, it goes back to when I was a live musician and that I'm setting up for a show that had already begun and everybody's just standing there staring at me, <laughs> move mics or, or whatever. Like that's a reoccurring nightmare, rock and roll nightmare I typically have. Uh, yeah, and I'm, there's a spotlight on you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, where can people see Songbirds? So it is dropping Tuesday, August 9th uh, on VOD. They can, the best place to do it is just to go to iTunes or if you have uh, Apple TV, you can, pre-order it there that's the big thing we want to encourage people to do is to pre-order the film the more pre-orders we get um the higher up in the uh shelf that itunes will put the film for more people to see so uh we really just want to encourage people to go 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 pre-order the film and they can do that by going to itunes or uh apple tv if they have it mm -hmm. uh, but after it drops it'll be available i believe on Amazon uh, to purchase or rent as well as uh, iTunes uh, and then any platform um, that you can rent or purchase a film, I believe it will be on. So, but right now we really just want to encourage everybody in the, in the, whether you're in the, the music or the film community to go right now to find that film and go ahead and place your pre-order. It's just, Twelve ninety nine, so it's not it's not a ton of money, uh, but we would love your support to to go ahead and get that pre order that pre order done. Yes, it does affect the algorithm for sure. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the more yep. people that order, more visibility for people who didn't know about it before. So, exactly. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Dagan. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me, and I hope everyone will watch Songbirds. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. As always, I'm going to close the show with a reading from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This one is from True Stories, Volume 2, which is still in the works, but here's a little sneak peek from the chapter called Been Caught Stealing. Ah, Led Zeppelin, where do we start? So many songs stolen. 
Yes, lots of British blues-based bands that started in the 60s paid tribute to the American blues artists that they love and were influenced by, but they sure didn't want to pay any royalties. The Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, the Who, and so many more got their creative juices flowing thanks to guys like Robert Johnson, Blind Lemon Jefferson, and Willie Dixon, to name just a few. And let's face it, music copyright laws were murky then, and many of those borrowed songs were greatly enhanced and altered. So where does homage end and theft begin? In some cases, it would take decades to get the answers. Led Zeppelin did give some credit here and there, but in at least a dozen instances, they neglected to do so. We took some liberties, I must say, founder and guitarist Jimmy Page admitted in an interview with Rolling Stone. As far as my end of it goes, I always tried to bring something fresh to anything that I used, but Robert Plant was supposed to change the lyrics and he didn't always do that, which is what brought on most of the grief. Robert was more philosophical about it all, telling Musician Magazine in 1990, well, you only get caught when you're successful. That's the game. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at rock and roll nightmares books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me. And until next time. <laughs>